Our text today is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. In the last sermon on this passage, we began to look at the contrast that Paul is setting out between the life of the believer and the life of the unbeliever. And so you should look to find yourself in these comparisons. Moreover, as we set these side by side, the level of true Christian appreciation for salvation and gratitude toward God must inevitably grow, the, the, the comparison. And so as we see what we were saved from, that should increase our affection for God. Sometimes we only realize what we have when we perceive what the alternative is. And so today we'll continue to look at some of the reasons why unbelievers are in such a mess. Sometimes as we look at the world, particularly if we look at television or some of the other media that's out there, there's one image that's projected, but then there is the reality that's behind that image that is very different in stark contrast to what is presented. And, and so we want to look behind the curtain. We want to look behind the facade of self-assurance and confidence and boasting that is put forward. And in this passage, we'll get a glimpse of what is truly going on in spite of the assurances to the contrary. We have considered already, last time, the futility, the emptiness, the hopelessness, if you will, of the unbeliever's mind, which is due, we're told, to their darkened understanding. Sin has pulled the shade. Sin has uh, kept man uh, because he's blocked out God and said, I don't want God's word to enlighten me or tell me what to do. I want to figure this out for myself. And that's the nature of all sin. And so when we enthrone ourselves, when we make ourselves to be king, and we dethrone him in our hearts, darkness comes. And we're not able to perceive. That's a job way too big for us. We are finite creatures, not infinite God. And when we take on the universe, and when we decide that we're going to rule, we, we very, very shortly bump into huge problems, overwhelming problems. We can't. We don't have the ability to do that. And the problems begin to flood in. And so we've considered that futility of mind, that darkened understanding, and now I want us to focus on the facts that the unbeliever is alienated from God, cut off from God. There's a separation. What, what does it mean to be separated from the life of God? How does that manifest itself in their lives? In chapter 2, Paul has already said that this was the way we all once walked. 
A futile and darkened understanding has led to a personal estrangement from God. The relationship broken. The fall of man began this estrangement. He was in fellowship with God. Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day in fellowship. But sin separated him from God. In other words, he died. That's what death is. It's separation from life. And God's the source of life, real life. And so there's a a break, a separation. So Adam has to hide. He cannot come into the presence of a holy God. At first, as we said, he was in fellowship, but then he hid. Soon he was cursed and even driven out of the garden. In fact, God posts cherubim with flaming swords to make sure he couldn't sneak back in, as it were, on his own terms. God would have to provide the path back in. He was now in the wilderness, cut off, alienated from the life of God. No more access to the tree of life. He was left to exist but not to live. He now wanders and he gropes in darkness, never satisfied, troubled, always into difficulties, one after another. Now there is a remnant of what he once had. He's still created in the image of God. He cannot escape that. But he longs for something bigger and better. He can't escape the image he bears. And so he longs to worship something Anything. The history of alienated man is filled with all sorts of idols. Some made of wood and stone and metal. Others created in their hearts and minds. And thus everything has been and continues to be worshipped. Everything but the true and living God. But Paul says... In 1 Corinthians 1.21, the world, through its wisdom, did not know God. The one thing they needed to know, the critical thing, the life-giving thing, that's the one thing that is not allowed into that world. And in our text, the Apostle gives us two answers to the question of why man is alienated from the life of God. The first is ignorance. The second is is blindness. So what exactly are they ignorant of? Every age has likely done this, but probably no age has done it any more than our own age, and that is to boast in our knowledge. The explosion of information. The Internet is the information superhighway. It's at your fingertips now. Yet with all of our knowledge... People are ignorant of God himself. They don't know God or the truth about God. They don't know his character. They don't know his attributes. They don't know his purposes. If they did, everything would change. First, they don't know his glory. I'm going to run through very quickly, just in a really sketchy way here, a brief way, just some of the things... And we could take these sermon series on all of these from the Bible. But they don't know the glory of God. Psalm 113, 4 and 5, The Lord is high above all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high? 
People are always interested in their own glory. They love the glory of celebrities. They they will willingly ascribe glory to a man or a woman. They will give glory to an entertainer, to a, a sports team, an athlete, or even a nation, all of which will shortly fade away. But they are oblivious to the glory of God because they are alienated from Him. Second, they are ignorant of God's majesty, of His eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, He's the same. He's the one thing, the one person that never changes. He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Not the slightest changing. Third, does the unbeliever ever give any real consideration to the holiness of God? In the Song of Moses, he asks this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders? And then fourth, what about his justice and his righteousness? The world cries for justice while it rejects the source of justice. The supreme ruler, the great authority, the one who is over everything is rejected. There is no God. There is no authority. There is no ultimate authority other than me. And then we're surprised that there's no justice. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Psalm 36.6 Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. Or fifth, have they really considered His power? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the universe, if you will, the cosmos. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then He continued to speak, and more things appeared And it's by that same word that they're sustained. That's the power that he has. And six, there's no awareness of his love, of his mercy, of his compassion. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, we already read, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together, and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The world is oblivious to that. Ignorant. Now we haven't gone very far at all in considering the character of God. In fact, we've only barely scratched the surface, but you've got the idea of what I'm saying here about the ignorance of the life of God, the alienation from the life of God. They, they don't know. It's been shut out. And by the way, this is a willful ignorance, a culpable ignorance. Those who are alienated from the life of God simply don't know Him. Not only do they not know Him, neither do they know about His purposes. They are ignorant of His plan for the world and for life. They don't know that He appointed the beginning and the end. That history 
is his story. Where are the nations? Where are all the famous people now? You think this is the first generation to have stars and celebrities? Rulers and kings and famous warriors? Where are they now? Well, all the ones you know of now, that's where they're headed to. There is only one everlasting king. They don't know that he is the governor of the universe. Here, Isaiah 40, 21 through 25. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes or the kings to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them. Like blowing out the candles on a birthday cake. And they shall wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Now you know this is true, right? That is the history of man. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. They ignore the fact that God will destroy all his enemies. In fact, they mock And they laugh at that idea. That can't be. They put their confidence in science and technology and perhaps artificial intelligence will save us. Because our regular intelligence sure isn't. But as the child's song rightly says, he's got the whole world in his hands. He brought the whole universe and all of its intricate details and all of its forces. He brought it all into being out of nothing. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and why do the people plot a vain thing? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords. You got the picture? All the kings of the earth, all the great leaders and rulers, all the people say, God's not going to tell us what to do. He is, he's restricting us. He's binding us. He's taking away all of our fun and all of our power. What can we do to get rid of Him? And here's what they say in unison in this grand conspiracy. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from Let's get rid of God and all of His restrictions. We want freedom. Verse 4 and 5. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them 
in his deep displeasure. Ignorant men and women are alienated from God and are whistling past the graveyard. It is a fearful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of a living God. Their willful ignorance allows them to forget that there's a slow train coming and that it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. And then there's the blindness. They might not see God. But as Hebrews 4 says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Ignorance isn't the only reason people are alienated from God. There are even people, perhaps some of you, who know things about God, who know the Bible, but there's another problem. And Paul says that it's the blindness of their heart. It's not just information that's lacking, and many people do need more information, but there's something much, much deeper. Alienation from God causes a willful ignorance because it also causes a darkening or a hardening of the heart. When I was a kid, I can remember spending most of the summer without shoes in the city, on the concrete and the asphalt. And about halfway through the summer, the soles of my feet would be so tough and hard and calloused. And I could walk across hot asphalt in August without much problem. You know why? My feet couldn't feel. The Apostle says that's what's happening to people's hearts. Not just Gentile hearts, but Jewish hearts. People who had grown up with the Bible and Scriptures. And when your heart gets hard, you can't feel anymore. Jesus certainly had something like this in mind when He taught the parable of the sower and the seed. And He talked about the stony ground that couldn't receive the Word of God. And so the bird just came and snatched it up flew away with it. It's why people can read the Bible and listen to sermons and see and hear nothing. It's why Jesus would use phrases like, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Or, Do you... Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? The book of Hebrews warns of this problem. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you. Now listen carefully. Ah, This is written. He's calling them brethren. These are church members. Beware, brethren, lest there be in you, what? An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We all know what happens when we persist in disobedience to God. Our hearts grow hard. 
We get used to sinning. We get comfortable with it. Our conscience is seared and hardened. Are there things that you used to do that troubled you, but now you can do them without much, if any, remorse at all? Oh well, I'm just a sinner. Oh well, I'm just human. That's a sign of hardening. That's a sign of a darkening heart. For many, they try to assist this process of silencing the heart with games or substance abuse or work or a thousand other ways. This is the way of unbelief. By the way, true belief in the Bible, if I ask everybody today, if we had a quiz, do you believe the Bible? Check, yes. Maybe you can name the books of the Bible. Maybe you quote some verses. Perhaps you pass the Bible quiz or a theology test, but you know what? You might still come up short, and to come up short is to fail. I fear some of you might fall into this dangerous category. If this heart hardening continues, it will end, as Paul says, with actual enmity toward God. That's how he describes the carnal mind. It is enmity toward God. It is an enemy of God. God stands against that. So there you have it. Ignorance and blindness of heart lead to futile thinking and a darkened understanding and alienation from the life of God. But that's not all. How does this work itself out in a person's life? Paul sums it up in verse 19. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to what? Lewdness. To work all uncleanness with greediness. Who cares? Who's to say, what the hell? It used to bother them, perhaps, but no more. You know, the prophet Jeremiah captured this when he wrote this in in Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. You can run, but you can't hide. Now let me say this. If you can still blush, then there's hope. If not, then the next thing is to give, is to give yourself over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Just start playing near the edge. Let yourself go. Have a little fun. And soon it'll just be reckless abandon. No restraint, no self-control. Nothing really matters except my immediate pleasure. Greediness, lewdness, literally the sensual life. Whatever feels good. Today, right now, that's all that matters. And they give themselves over, and so God gives them over. That's what you want, God says, then go for it. Let's see how that works out. 
Romans 1.28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. Lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness all go together. Self-seeking, sensuality, lust, finally devour and kill. All that's left is an empty shell, if anything's left at all. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what we've been saved from. Why would we ever look back? Why would we want that? Why do we listen to the siren call of the world? The lost man, you see, is lost. He's groping in darkness. The story of man in sin is a tragedy that ends with an eternal funeral, eternal death, eternal alienation from God. Perhaps you've heard these warnings many times but failed to really hear them. Your ignorance or blindness of heart have dulled your perception and you remain alienated from the life of God. It's, it's kind of weird to think that you could sit in church week after week, live in a Christian home, have a Christian education, go to Bible studies, and still not hear or see. Still be ignorant. Still be alienated from the life of God. Man's chief end is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. And those are just, if those are just words you've memorized like a parrot, then you're in trouble. They need to be words that describe your life. Are you running toward the light or would you rather hang out in the city of destruction? The unbeliever is strolling down the train tracks and there is a train coming around the bend. And I'm trying to sound the alarm. Wake up. Flee the wrath to come. In the opening pages of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, I actually thought about this last night and looked this up. We find the story of the beginning of the character Pilgrim and his awakening. I wish I had time to read more, but here is an abridged version of this opening of the story. This is how the allegory starts. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I arrived at a certain place where there was a den, and I laid down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, facing away from his house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book. And he was reading from it, and as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able to contain himself any longer, he broke out with a lamentable cry. What shall I do? I saw also he looked this way and that way as if he would run. Yet he stood still because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, and he asked, Why are 
you cry. He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I'm not willing to do the first or able to do the second. Then said Evangelist, Why aren't you willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, Because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into hell. The thoughts of these things make me cry. Then Evangelist said, If this be your condition, why are you standing still? He answered, Because I don't know where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Flee from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it, and looking at Evangelist very carefully, said, To where must I flee? And then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicked gate? Wicked gate. And the man said, No. And he said, Do you see yonder shining light? And he said, I I think I do. Then said Evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go directly to it. Then you shall see the gate, at which when you knock it shall be told you what you shall do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears, and he ran on crying, Life! Life! Eternal life! So he looked not behind him, but fled toward the middle of the plain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for so great a salvation that delivered us from futility and ignorance, enlightens our darkened heart, gave us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, and most importantly, ended the enmity and alienation between us and you. Great deliverer, the truth has set us free from the power of sin and death. Oh, happy day. Help us to see the stark contrast between belief and unbelief and to grow in grace day by day. Grant us opportunities to evangelize and to spread the good news to others who are still trapped in their sins and futility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The communion table is the picture of the opposite of alienation from the life of God. It is the place of restoration and renewal, a place for a fresh start, the beginning of a new week. I don't know what your last week was like, but I know that in Christ, 
this week can be and should be better. John Samus wrote the hymn, Trust and Obey, in 1887, and I think the lyrics are a good summary of what it means to be in communion with God. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, nor a sigh, nor a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows, are for them who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says... We will do where he sends, we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. O God, our Father, you have been our refuge and dwelling place in all generations, before all creation and from all eternity, you are God. But as for us, our days are like grass, as the flowers in the field. We appear but for a moment, and the wind passes over us, and we are gone. O Lord, make us to know the end and measure of our days, that we might know how frail we really are. May we reflect on the vanity, brevity, and uncertainty of things seen and temporal, and may we pursue those things which are unseen and eternal. May we seek the pardon of our sins and the sanctification of our nature's with all the diligence that their infinite importance demand, and may we know how to live godly and cheerful lives. Establish us, Lord, in a firm and lively persuasion of your being, your providence and grace. We thank you for our personal comforts and blessings. May we always hold them at your disposal and be ready to relinquish them at your call. Give us delight in your word, O God. May we eagerly search it, love it, long to keep it, seek with all our hearts the God who is revealed there. Guard our lives according to it. Lay it up in our hearts. Judge all the ideas of men by it and convey its teaching to others, longing for them to know it and obey it. Cleanse us from rationalizations, excuses, half-hearted obedience. Teach us to meditate upon your word day and night. Let it be our food and drink. Now we pray, Father, that you would bless your people and comfort us with your word. We pray you would bless our feast and our rest. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen.